Hey everybody, we want to tell you about a brand new podcast on the Osiris Media Network. Eric Krasno, who has sat in with Panic several times, has a brand new podcast called Plus One. Here's the trailer. Hey guys, this is Eric Krasno here. Wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm putting together with my friends from Osiris. It's called Eric Krasno Plus One. I'll be sitting down with a lot of my favorite musicians and people from the entertainment industry that I've gotten to know over the years. One of the great things about being a touring musician are the people I've met along the way. Some of my favorite memories from the 20 years I've spent on the road are the backstage conversations and hearing my favorite musicians tell their stories. I've gotten to meet many of my heroes and watched many young musicians become legends in their own right. The one constant I've found is that they all have a unique and interesting story to tell. There's a certain bond that just happens between musicians, especially musicians that have been on the road together. I invite you to be a fly on the wall for these conversations. Welcome to Eric Krasno Plus One. Presley, want to read tonight? Uh, tonight we read, I think it's a nature magazine. Uh, I think it's called Ask, maybe, which, which is an acronym for something. But we read about, uh, it's, it's like, this would have been the perfect book to read for 420, actually. It's like, do trees, <laughs> do trees talk? Huh. It's like, oh, no way, man. Like, you just sit here long enough. Like, you just hear the trees, man. They just are talking to each other. Um, no, it was like they talk uh, through their roots with, like, these fungus that come out of their roots hmm. and such. It was very so, interesting. But it was that sounds good. super heady. Did I hear a dog barking in the background? Yeah, there's a dog in the house. What happened there? That's new. <sighs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess my wife felt like we had lots of extra time. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, no, so it's a foster dog. It was like a rent to own situation, you know, where we would, <laughs> you got it. We would you got see, kick, the, kick, kick the tires a little bit, see if we like him. If not, we'll send him back. Um, uh-huh. uh, and you know, he was, he is, or she, I'm sorry, she, she, I've never had a girl dog before. That's what throws me off. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. She was, you know, I think she was a, uh, not a trouble case, but, you know, a more challenging, uh, type of, you know, personality, mm-hmm. which my, you know, my wife, I think saw as a challenge. And so her, the inner dog trainer came out and was like, oh yeah, I can fix that dog. Mm. Well, three weeks later, she's about ready to throw the dog out the window. So <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to tell her that what our family needed right now was like a really chill, easy, calm, happy dog, mm-hmm. not a, like manic, you know. Um, so she's just, she's sweet. And Qu- Quincy has loved, I mean, he's really good with her, actually. So that's, mm. we're sort of like, you know, this is good. We needed sort of like a test run, and now we can actually do you know we're better at what we you know 
remembered everything we're supposed to do because we've, we've been out of you know without dog for several years so. is uh it was does quincy know that this dog is temporary and yeah we, t- we told him okay yeah we told him last week and he was like oh okay and he's like and then we i think i asked him later he's like yeah i think mom went or he told maybe told like a grandparent on facetime that um we wanted to get a dog that didn't jump on dad yeah it's like a that's, call. Fair. That's fair. I'm sure he's not going to be emotional about it at all, though, when the dog leaves. No, no. Actually, I think he's pretty resilient. I, I would make a wager that he'll be fine as yeah, long as okay. there's another dog to replace him. Uh, we'll see. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess the idea was that we're going to we're at home, and and that's you know you want you want to train the dog and. Otherwise, we'd be gone for eight hours and you know, mm-hmm. yada, yada. But, there are a bunch of people getting dogs right now for that very yeah. reason. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so anyway, yeah. So that's what's been going on with us. And, but, uh, um, well, that's, that's exciting. That's new. We don't have anything that exciting and new. No. No. Um, so, uh, yeah. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. This is the Bluest Tape. This is episode 104. And... Um, you know, I guess for the first time, we're, we're pretty much, you know, I guess we're all doing the same thing. We're, uh, <laughs> we're all at home and uh, everybody's got their own challenges, you know, and that's, I, I count myself lucky that I still have a job and everybody's healthy and safe, um, you know, but we definitely have our challenges and I know other folks have their own that may be slightly different, but we definitely are all at home. <laughs> right now and hoping for you know everything to get better and uh we'll just take some time it may take a little while i think this week is uh this week was important it sort of turned it turned the corner a little bit with uh last dance dropping last sunday night and then the nfl, mm-hmm. the NFL draft being on as we record this uh, yeah a glimmer of sports <laughs> yes a glimmer of sports before we get sports back with no people uh, mm-hmm. watching it that's going to be really interesting to see especially if they do nba games without 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 the crowd what are they gonna do yeah. you know yeah, yeah i don't know uh, it's hockey will get to be a lot of basketball i mean listening to basketball games like when they mic the floor at the final four really loudly and you get all the squeaking and stuff it's really disconcerting they're just gonna have they should just have like a Ludacris or uh, Master P or somebody like that at every game. I did. I did the same. Oh, that's a good idea. I yeah. said Master P on, on, on purpose because I know he's a former professional basketball player, isn't he? Or didn't he try to play professional basketball? I, yeah, I, don't, I have no idea. Um, there was. Uh, they did the uh, Never Miss a Sunday show. Did you watch that? Uh, no, I saw. I followed you uh, on the live tweeter though. That you did oh, okay. that that you did on uh, at bluest tape. Yep, yeah, that was fun. And um, I, I, so if you, don't, I mean, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knew knows that they showed the Panic in the Streets uh, concert video on uh, Sunday night for the Never Miss a Sunday show, uh, and it was at what um, 21 years and a mm-hmm. day after it 22 happened. Years, so. 22 years. 22 years that's right um so if you want to hear our breakdown it was from two years ago on the 20th anniversary um and 
I enjoyed that show. That was great. We had, I forget the guy's name that we interviewed that wrote the book on mm -hmm. the uh, event. It was just interesting to hear all the backstory about, you know, the machinations of, of Athens politic uh, and how that all, uh, how they pulled that off, which is, I think, still to this day, sort of amazing to think about and see. Yeah, and uh, I have not, uh, I did not watch it on Sunday night, like I just said. I have not watched that in a long time, but I, did you have the VHS tape? I did, hell yeah, hell yeah, the, uh, I had a VHS tape. With, with the bonus disc. Um, yeah, the oversized uh, box, yeah, you know, that it came in. Oversized box, which made it difficult to store because it was mm -hmm. not the same size as everything else. Um, and actually, when we move, last time we, that's always one of the things I find when we move. <laughs> Because it's never been where it's supposed to be because I took the VHS tape out years ago and I took the right. CD out years ago. But of course, me being me, I didn't, I'm not going to throw that box away. So oh God, it's, no. it's, it's, always, it's always in some random box with random stuff. Um, and I probably with, uh, it's probably up in the attic, but I definitely know it's here in Memphis right now. They um well they released it on DVD you know I guess several years I, later I do have um, it on the DVD too that I guess it came out I mean, it was a pretty quick turnaround right I mean I feel mm -hmm. like that was like was it fall ninety eight maybe that it came out on VHS uh, yeah I would yeah say. It, it came out very I mean it came out when VHSs were still like a reasonable thing for people to have. Oh that's what I was gonna say it was right on the cusp right I mean yeah. like I feel like that next year you started seeing the occasional DVD player and you're like, you would mm -hmm. see it and you'd be like, Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Even though, you know, TVs were still pretty awful back then, but um, yeah. So they did that. Um, somebody tweeted, you know, that they, they would hope that the band would remaster and release the entire show. And um, I think that sounds great. I think the podcast supports that, right? That endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot that they can do with the video because my guess is it was just recorded on standard. digital video. Yeah. Yeah. And standard def, you know, DVD quality video back then was, you know, just 480p and um, letterbox. Not to get technical you know, or anything, but yes, yeah, 480p. Yeah. Right. And. <laughs> Well, yeah. Hey, if you're listening to this and that put turns you off, me saying 480p, then you're on the wrong podcast, pal. Or, <laughs> or not to get technical on the Blue Estate, but um, yeah. So and no, but also and it's digital as opposed to like sort of analog. That there's not much you can really do, right? To like mm -hmm. clean it up or improve it or go back to a more pure source. So. Um, I think the video is what it is. Maybe the audio could be sweetened a little bit, although I think it sounds really pretty good. Um, but they could certainly release the rest of the show. And uh, because watching that live, it was fun, but I mean, it was quick. It's like, mm -hmm. I mean, and it, could, it obviously was released on VHS. I mean, it's, I feel like it's like an hour and a half maybe yeah. um, total. And so, you know, that was a full length panic show. And there's definitely some, um, some quality material that was that was left off as sort of following along as it was happening but um you know they after that avis that cuts off there's a diner and walk-in um henry parsons died all-time low you know and those are the, the first all-time low and then uh in the second set you don't get the greta christmas katie first christmas katie and radio child or the arlene papa's drums arlene or 
Arlene Papa's drums, Papa's, which I'm sure was fun. So um, that would all be great to, stuff to see. So I don't know what, I mean, I don't know. Here we sit. We haven't had a multi-track release in like two years. So we're like, you know, release the rest of the Life Views Getaway release party. I don't, I don't know how, how hopeful we should be about that. You know, I should go look. I feel like I had the whole show on debt. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's definitely I circulated. I had, I had it. Yeah, I had, I had it. No doubt. I had it. I, I, I'm talking video, though. I mean, you know, there's video of the rest of that show. Uh, they didn't. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that they were like, all right, you guys take a break after Ann Davis, skip all this diner <laughs> stuff and come back, come back for the port song. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so they've got it all. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, I guess figuring out a way to make some money off of it, which, you know, fell power to them. So. Anyway, that was fun, and um, you know, I always enjoy re- revisiting that show. Um, but that show was uh, the last show cut from our Sweet 16 uh, bracket that we have been doing, the Panic Sweet 16, for the last several weeks. Um, it was, yeah, it was in there, and then it got taken out when we realized that they had released that one extra um, mm-hmm. show. So, um Anyway, we've got the uh, we've got the results from all of the first round matchups. Um, we, you know, last episode we'd gone through the first four uh, results, but we've got the the right side of the bracket uh, results are all in and tallied. Uh, official from the uh, the accounting firm of what's what's the accounting? It's a Dewey Cheatham and Howe who does the. Uh, yeah, that's car talk. Who does the uh, Price Waterhouse typically? Price Waterhouse, yeah, I think that's who you, you hired to, yeah. to or count Delo- the or, or, or uh, Deloitte. One, it's one, either one of those two. <laughs> um, so we've got all of those uh, results in. So um, we had a couple. There are a couple uh, close matchups. Uh, the first, the first four matches, four, first four were all you know, relatively comfortable victories, but uh, we had a couple of close ones. So um, in the uh, three fourteen matchup, uh, the uh, New Orleans 10-28-2000 defeated Johnson City 11-20-01 by uh, 58-42%. And that was the closest matchup in the bracket. Um, a little, little surprised by that. Yeah, I thought I was too, frankly. <clears throat> I thought that would be another walkover like a lot of the other uh, matchups were, but a lot of silent support for, uh, not a silent majority, but a lot of silent support for uh, Johnson City. Yeah, do you think that was the um, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the bigger driver than the, you know, than any sort of, uh, that, that, out, that New Orleans 2000 was overseeded or anything like that? Uh, maybe, maybe, but I think it's, you know, it's near and dear to us, but I think, it, you know, as a reaction to what's happening in the world, you know, it's a lot of those Trump Obama voters, I'm sure probably went for Johnson city, you know, um, Johnson city is a big, uh, you know, maybe had a lot of support, um, from, from our huge contingent of, uh, of MAGA listeners or CAGA, mm-hmm. of which I'm sure we have. Two. I don't think it's CAGA. It's just CAG, right? It's MAGA and CAG. Oh, yeah. Keep America. Yeah, it's not it's just, America. Uh, we'll take it. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But um, <laughs> we'll take we'll take all your listeners and no judgment. And we all, you know, well, hopefully want the best thing for 
everything. Sure. And this is every, the, everyone. And this is the George McConnell bracket for those of you uh, <laughs> filling out your bracket sheets at home. Yeah, we didn't touch on that the last episode, so I felt like you kind of threw those out there. So you're going to have to, um, yeah, give a little bit of description. So each of the each of the four regions were, was named after yeah. a former after uh, member the of the three, band. Yes, the three deposed members of the band, and then uh, a deposed sound man. One of several <laughs> deposed sound men, but my favorite deposed sound man. Although I suppose in you know he was the sound guy when i was going to a lot of shows but west that came mm-hmm. before him i think it may be a little bit more infamous just because of how he uh his, his, his claim to fame and how the 97 uh soundboards came out to the public so which we we touched on in an early episode i believe so um so yeah 58 to 42 for uh for 1028 2000 so they advance to the elite eight and then uh they will take on the winner of the 611 which was uh, boulder colorado from the sit and tour 12096 uh and it was taken on uh, knoxville tennessee 92895 they were the 11 seed that was uh the second most recent release that was curated by sam holt and um so Boulder uh, advances, kind of squeaked this one out as well, 64 to 36. Uh, I think a lot of support for that Knoxville show. And I think, again, I think there is a silent uh, contingent that is uh, anti-sit-and-ski folks out there. I think mm. they exist. I, I haven't personally met any of them, um, but I think that they exist. And I think that might be where some of this uh, this anti-Boulder uh, wow. sentiment is coming from. And that might make for an interesting matchup here in the Elite Eight as we get the New Orleans uh, 2000 show against the Boulder sit and ski. And uh, maybe maybe some strong opinions either way on those shows. I feel like we've got we've uncovered this. We've uncovered a uh, an anti-establishment pa- group of panic fans out there. Um do you think that there's a group out there that are sort of akin to like the Green Party that are George McConnell partisans? Mm, that's interesting to think about. I don't know that there's many of those. <laughs> in the, in the um, way, way, way far flung northern woods of Wisconsin and very, very rural areas around Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, there, are, right. <laughs> there, there are there are a cachet of strongly opinionated George McConnell fans. Um, and uh, and I think you know you, you name this bracket in jest, but I think we both are um, are probably more on the positive on the George positive scale than most people uh, in yes. the in the scene, right? And yes, uh, we are more on the George uh, positive scale. And uh, I mean, I, I would go so far as to say pro George, you pro George, pro George. I feel like we yeah. we, we need to. Uh, I think I think it, so. It's been there's been some t- revisionism with time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So pro George, I, I find, do you, do you listen to the 36 from the vault, uh, podcast series? That's also on Osiris. Uh, uh, I have not listened to it as much as I should have. Okay. It's really good. You should listen to it. I heard, they did, they, a, uh, I heard they did a fish show. Um, they did do a fish show and it was, it was kind of meta, you know, I mean, they were, I think they were very self-aware that that was probably going to, uh, piss a lot of people off. And so that's, you know, I think they kind of got it. I think they enjoyed that bit a little bit, but, um, they are, they're staunchly pro Donna on that podcast, uh, which is, you know, not a super common, um, sentiment, but, but they make a really strong case, honestly. And I would say that they, you know, uh, that I can see where they're coming from. What is their, what is their, like, just give me, you know, 
boil it down. Boil down their argument to one sentence. I'll give you the uh, the elevator pitch for Donna. Um, I think, well, pitch, uh, uh, certainly part of it. I think they would blame a good amount of her, um, you know, pitch, imperfect pitch to the wall of sound. And that that was uh, that she didn't have a true monitor, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the, and it's one thing to play a bass in front of, you know, a gazillion watts of sound. Mm-hmm. And it's another to try to sing harmony yeah. uh, in front of a really loud band. So they that was a little bit. And then the other was, you know, I mean, really, your alternative is essentially Phil as the as the third harmonist. So what what is your preference? Right. Um you know, and so Phil worked as think, uh, Phil worked to harmony vocals in like sixty-six, seven, eight, and nine when they were a little bit rough around the edges. Yet, yeah. a little bit more played played those faster-paced songs with a little more abandon, as opposed to you know Donna era stuff, which is much more, which is uh, yeah, it just Phil's voice would not have fit in there. It's too precise. And I think show the flaws of in it too much. Yeah. And I think that also, you know, maybe even that they would prefer her to Brent as the, as the third voice too, which was, I, you know, potentially your place. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I think it's fair. I think Brent is fun and adds a lot of stuff, but uh, yeah, I think that's, so that's uh, the, there's the, uh, the elevator pitch for Donna. I, I, am, I, um, Donna is she's always sort of been like the butt. I mean, she's just, she's been the butt of jokes. I mean, even mm-hmm. when I was first listening to the dead and trading tapes um, in college, but I, what's hilarious is we listened to the dead channel a lot on Sirius XM and I'll turn on a show and everybody's in the car and it'll be like a 74 show or something with a plane in the band, like, Ooh, plan. And hmm. it'll be like the, it'll be like the opening thing, and it's just it, like most of the time the kid the kids don't care, and Jen can tune mm-hmm. anything out. But then it gets to like the Donna wailing part, and Oof. she's like, "What? What is wrong with her? Why?" <laughs> it's, like, it's a very good question, and it's like, and, mm-hmm. and you know, she's heard a bunch of different versions of her of that song and other things that she's on, and like she just sounds terrible all the time, and she's mm-hmm. not a bad singer. I mean, she sang harmony right. and Muscle Shoals for for years on a bunch of really she sang, she sang on suspicious minds she i mean it, yeah. elvis doesn't hire shitty backup singers you know what i mean <laughs> like <laughs> that's not how it works so yeah but so, uh, not to go too far down the rabbit hole but um the point i was just bringing a parallel back to sure. us here of the you know the mcconnell donna you know i think they can those are similar uh you know, hot takes to support this. I folks. listened to several uh, episodes, several George parts of George shows last week uh, to listen to their that band's version of Green Onions. Actually, um, oh wow, yeah, because the first two that the band did in like ninety five, one ninety five, and the one in ninety seven don't sound like Green Onions. I just can't, I can't mm-hmm. hear it. But then I the, mm-hmm. the, that band, George's band, did like the legit. That was a legit green onion yeah, show. Yeah, great. It's really good. And then they've done it with Jimmy since too. So, yep. Um, okay, so that those were the first two matchups, or I guess, from the McConnell bracket, and then the uh, the final two matchups, uh, to the final two tickets to be punched for the Elite Eight, um, the seven seed, which was uh, 
New Year's 97 at the Fox uh, against the 10 seed, uh, which was uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, 11-17-98. And, you know, I think probably to nobody's surprise, Atlanta uh, Atlanta ran ran away with this one, 85-15 to was the final result. Um, So... Yeah, I think having the having the three sets support uh, you know, certainly helps. Uh, you know, if if it was if it's close, you, you got to feel like you lean in that direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that one goes through the seven seed, and then they will take on uh, Myrtle Beach five five ninety nine, uh, which defeated Jacksonville, Florida four twenty seven ninety nine uh, seventy four to twenty six. So. Um, you know, certainly closer than the 116, the 215. But again, as we'd mentioned last episode, or at least I did, that Jacksonville show woefully underseated. So I think some of that might have been protest vote and people that uh, not necessarily voting against Myrtle Beach wanted to support the uh, Jacksonville show. I uh, There was a lot of see, the commentary. Uh, I thought that maybe it would even be a little bit closer than what it was. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, and both shows are great, but 5-5. Five, five, gets the nod and uh, set, setting up for a pretty uh, strong uh, elite eight on that side of the bracket with uh, sit and ski versus Nola Ween, And then a new year's versus, you know, a Myrtle, the Myrtle beach 99 run, which um, that show is, you know, also a lot, in a lot of people's top fives. So uh, yeah. tough matchups. Yeah. So those will be good to, to watch. And then, um, on the original, the you know first half of the bracket, uh, the two matchups were um, Huntsville uh, ninety six uh, and Pelham oh one seven twenty nine oh one Oak Mountain. Mm. Uh, so that's the one nine, and then the the, uh, the T Lavitz bracket in the upper yep. left part of your the all the all Alabama shows, mm-hmm. and then uh, the Midwest matchup. Uh, the five Carbondale 2000 taking on the four seed uh, Palace Theater in Louisville from 97. So yes, congratulations, uh, Kentucky for being uh, brought in to the Midwest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kentucky was brought in to, with, under the auspices of a, you know, a council of governors to just to discuss reopening their states and, we we kicked out Iowa and we added uh, we added Kentucky. I think that's a better trade anyway. So I think- yeah, I mean I think that's a win win. Honestly, <laughs> I think you guys would rather have us than Iowa, and we would rather hang out with you than Tennessee and Georgia and Florida, <laughs> West Virginia, so, Virginia, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, Kentucky is uh, is a very uniquely situated geographic mm-hmm. state, you know, and add to it that it's such a wide. Um, what is that? Is that longitude, like east west, um, whatever? Right. You know, it's very wide, and it's so latitude. It, you have a lot. That's latitude. yeah. yeah we got a lot of latitude, and uh, because you know, western Kentucky is essentially like the plains, mm-hmm. uh, and eastern Kentucky is the mountains. You know, and so uh, so anyway, there's definitely different uh, pockets of personality in each of those areas, and. Um, yeah, we'd rather hang out with the Midwest folks, I think. I mean, it's definitely worked for our football team. I mean, that's who uh, we've, we've built our, you know, 
SEC competitive SEC level football team on the backs of a bunch of kids from Ohio and Michigan and Illinois mm-hmm. um, and selling them on coming down to play in the SEC rather than getting, you know, the, the third or fourth uh, team, all state guys from Georgia and Florida. I did have to uh, <laughs> feel like I should do uh, sit down and help Presley with his social studies homework. I do. Uh, yes. You have longitude. You were correct. Originally. Sorry. For oh, that. wow. Did, did I really? Wow. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so who does the, who's, do, who's doing the teaching in your house? Is it you sharing that burden or? Um, I think that Presley receives some teaching through the resources that he uh, gets from the Shelby County school system. Okay. And, and then what he learns from his various educational programs and then from his mother. And then I'm trying to help him learn how to shoot a basketball on our indoor Nerf hoop. Oh, man. Yeah, Keaton and I have been doing that a lot. Yeah, I, uh, that, that, was a, that was a first first week of quarantine purchase was, mm-hmm. the, uh, was the Nerf hoop. Um, yep. and it was funny because uh, some of my good friends uh, from growing up had this idea that we should do, we would do Zoom happy hour, but then we would do Zoom happy hour horse. Mm, on our Nerf hoop. That's a good idea. Yeah. And then we were like, the NBA stole our idea. Well, then the NBA's went on TV and it was like the worst product ever. And uh, mm-hmm. like, okay, we don't, we don't need to do this for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so what I've noticed, because we've got it up in, in the boys' room, like on their closet door, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I've forgotten that there's a, there's a very specific skill to getting the proper arc. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the the ceiling. I mean, we don't have super high ceilings, so it's like I don't know how much space between the rim and the and the ceiling, but it's like a, foot, a couple feet, maybe mm-hmm. you know. And so you got to really got to you got to hit that that arc just exactly perfect. Do you have a foam ball or a rubber ball? Um, we have a, a rubber ball. Okay. Yes. Well, you have two. The one that came with the hoop is was is really active. And so there's not, yeah. there's not a lot of give and it's hard to deflate. So I actually took, I found another one that was ha- set outside for two years under like a bush <laughs> and uh, I cleaned it up and it's like, it's just flat enough mm. so that you can, it, it has a lot of give. So uh, yeah. you can just wang you get it up. Roller, oh, yeah, roll, so, so many, roll. so many soft <laughs> banks. It's fantastic. Nice. Um, well, I know this is what everybody's listening for is the, is us talking about uh, indoor basketball, but you know that's a good idea. That's uh it's something that we can share with the people. Have you done a lot of uh, home, you know, improvement or, you know, gardening yard stuff? Uh, I've done some mulching. I need to finish mulching uh, because the half the pile is still sitting in the yard because I broke the garden. I broke the yard cart uh a couple of fr- last friday and mm. sought out have tried to find a replacement wheel which was difficult so i'm just going to need to bite the bullet and go buy another yard cart um so yeah we've done a little bit of that uh other than that not a lot you know just trying to keep things uh trying to keep things clean yeah things yeah that's a that's a battle um did, that, did, did we talk last uh episode about the when I, I broke the stove 
Yeah, I think we talked about it on the uh, episode. On the show. You you sent me a picture of it. You fixed it? Yeah, I mean, I replaced the outlet. I fried the outlet uh, that the the range was plugged into, which is like, you know, one of those big 50-watt, you know, dryer type outlets and um yeah went to went to lowe's and picked up the replacement and you know undid it and rewired it and didn't burn my house down so um i mean it took a few hours (laughs) probably shouldn't have taken as long as it did but you know it's going to be just right so um yeah it's been an adventure so we'll see um all right so we've got uh I don't want to get too long because we've got uh, we got an interview that we want to share, which is, um, you know, as is the case with with this show, um, you know, time not always of the essence. We like things that happened way deep in the past, and so we're going to bring you an interview that was uh, that was done way deep in the past, and that was on New Year's Eve. Um, in Charlotte, North Carolina with, uh, with the band Jupiter Coyote. And, um, it feels like it was a different world in new year's. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was so long ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I guess it was, only, you know, it was less than four months. So, uh, you know, apologies to those guys. I, you know, had intended, I mean, I talked about it on this, you know, podcast for a while that we were going to get this out and we just kept, things kept happening. We couldn't get it done. Um, but uh, we're going to finally do it uh, this week uh, with our with our Elite Eight reveal. So, um, which is actually kind of fitting because did you know that um, Matthew Mays, who's the lead singer and songwriter, uh, played basketball at the University of South Carolina and was recruited had a, had an an offer sheet from Joe B. Hall at Kentucky. Did you know that? Wow, he's he's is that crazy? He's that old. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, he played in. I guess it was in the early eighties. Early eighties, yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, not that so, that old, but I didn't think that those guys. I mean, I knew those guys had been around for a while, but that's that's a long while. Yeah. Um, so maybe it was Eddie Sutton. Because uh, I feel like he played in like the mid to late eighties, so yeah. that wouldn't have been Joe B. But. Um, Anyway, not to get into the details, but he told me that like at the end, like after we'd done the interview and we were like saying goodbye, he's like, yeah, you know, I had this, I still have this letter that I got from the University of Kentucky offering me a basketball scholarship. And I'm like, oh, what? That's pretty cool. uh, I was like, I would save that for another day. Mm-hmm. And apparently he got into some, some NCAA shenanigans when he was at Carolina, at South Carolina. So he's like, I'll, we'll have to talk about that in the next, next episode. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I look forward to that. That's pretty um, funny. So, uh, so anyway, so all that, uh, as a preface of, uh, sat down with, with him and a couple of the other members of the band, um, hopefully you can, um, can keep up with, you know, there were a couple of folks came in and out of the conversation and I apologize if there's some background noise too, cause it was just, we sort of set the mic down and, and we're chatting backstage. So, um, but there's some cool stuff. The, uh, the drummer of the band was, um, was in the Fiji Mariners for a few years and uh so uh and love Jupiter Coyote. They've been around for for a good good long time and played with Panic quite a few times and there's some connections. We talked about that uh, in the in the uh interview. So uh we'll get to that and then um 
Did you have any uh, any music that you wanted to to play on the tail end of this? Oh, I guess I, I probably ought to just play play their stuff. That's what I was going to do. Yeah. So we'll just do that. So we'll play some of the stuff from their show. Um, and I want to start it off with a version uh, that Matt recorded of one of his favorite panic songs. And I was like, man, would you mind recording a, a panic song for the podcast? And like a day later, he emailed this to me and I was like, holy moly. Thanks, dude. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so we'll kick off with that and then get our interview from uh, New Year's Eve on 97. And um, we'll, we'll post over the next uh, week or so the different matchups that we have in the Elite Eight. So vote on that. Uh, and next episode, we'll reveal those winners and, uh, and break down the final four, which will be exciting. So um, anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for participating. Uh, BlueistTape.com uh, at BlueistTape on Twitter. Blue tape 12 at Gmail if you prefer the old school. Uh, and what else? Did I miss anything? Facebook, all that stuff. And um, so uh, until next time, thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out.
So that's what I just thought. Well, they're in the fox for three straight nights. <laughs> wondering if anybody's going to show up. <laughs> so if we're in the same space they are, it's like at the bottom of their space. Well, I mean, 20 years ago, I guess. Um, so I guess what's, what's up with Jupiter Coyote and Tornado? Well, we're going to continue to kind of cherry pick to where we're doing right now. Yeah. Might move that Randy side a little further than we've been going. Now that, you know, we took about a seven or eight year break. Okay. We did when we started, I didn't think it was going to be that long. You know, three years led four, four to five. It was that long. It was mm-hmm. quite a break. So now that we've been back out there playing the last couple of years, I'm starting to see more interest in other places. I think you guys are back out there playing, so that's yeah. kind of opening up some other avenues for us to stick our it's, feet out there and see what happens. I mean, obviously, so your your fan base has gotten older. Like, you guys have gotten older. I'm older than I was when I saw y'all at the... That's <laughs> it's a funny how that works, right? Right. <laughs> so, but what's interesting... As your fan, I mean, your fan base has gotten older. They've also maybe gotten a little more comfortable with life. You know what I mean? It's like hard to get them out. Yeah, right. But maybe they have a little more cash than they used to. That too. You know? they do. So um, I don't know. Just it's it's a challenge for you guys. Well, all those festivals and bigger play stuff. I'm probably going to work us in in 2020. Yeah. Want us for that very reason. Yeah. It's we cater to that demographic and that crowd, and they've got money to spend. They're older. Yeah. They'll come out for stuff like that. I mean, wouldn't like a festival with like you guys and all good and the grapes and you know whoever like all those bands like together like we played with all good i mean like august wouldn't you know like and that could be like a destination for folks be like oh we can go hang it out could. with our old we buddy, did one in Dawson, georgia okay. with all good and there was talk of doing one in april we couldn't coordinate everybody's dates. yeah well that's also the problem right you guys it is the all good only does about two or three shows a year yeah so get that'd be good in charleston too yeah that, you know that be received well plays a federal judge right no <laughs> oh, wow. yeah so getting them free and getting everybody scheduled sure. coordinated together is difficult yeah even us with a couple guys with full-time jobs makes it a little bit more difficult than it was to do it. So, yeah, um, I think, you know, Panic's doing it. That makes sense. It's easier on them. They can kind of do residency shows right. the places they want to yeah. go. Uh-huh. Uh, they pack them out. Their fans like it. That's the same thing all the way around. Yeah. Sure. Take a lot of that travel out of it. That's a travel it's nicer, nicer to pick when you want to play when you can count on sellouts, too. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, a, it's a more finite thing, right? Yeah. So the fans... <laughs> well, they've earned it, man. They've no, it's been a long time. Right, but it's like if they're only playing 12 shows a year, then like people are they're going to go, as opposed to if they're playing 200. Then, you know, if you're right. playing a Wednesday night in Carbondale, you know, they're probably not selling that out anymore. You know what I mean? Like, right. But, so, so you guys got started early 90s. Or earlier, what was 1990? Actually. Okay, all right. And so, if you you talked before we started about 9/11, but like, what was the what was that from 90 to 01? What was your you know what was the trajectory and you know you Man, guys it were was hitting on a steady hard. climb, yeah, like yeah. Apple stock, right? Yeah. It, every album, gosh, we made five albums. We had a joint venture with a major label with our indie label, and everything was moving along pretty good. And even when we got out of that before before 9-11 happened, which didn't really stop us at all. We had our own record label. We had international distribution. We had everything in-house that we needed. And it was on a steady climb. Now, we had a three-week, 18-show tour in Europe lined up. We had a pressman distribution deal out of Europe with a company in Frankfurt, Germany called Blue Rose. And we were getting ready to head to, to Europe where I felt like we'd already sold thousands of CDs over there through Blue Rose and we'd never toured over there. So three weeks before 9-11, we were supposed to get on a plane three weeks after that. Mm. Of course, they grounded all the international flights. Nobody knew what was going on. They couldn't guarantee our safety. We had to cancel that tour. 
That was they were, the, they were pissed too. Yeah, mm. it was. Mm. It was a, a dangerous time. That was the beginning of the slide, <laughs> far as gigs off here. But it was certainly. <laughs> yeah. You know, we kind of felt like we were going to break Europe wide open, probably bigger yeah. over there, so more so than here, and then it might catch up over here. But it was on a steady climb yeah. every year. Yeah. And we were pulling back the tour in a little bit and picking, playing bigger places, bigger shows. Pure Everything right. looked good. But like yeah. I said, just trucking right along, yeah. kind of like on a nice, steady, slow, organic climb yeah. until that happened. Um, so here, I'm just going to share my experience of how I came upon you guys. So a buddy of mine gave me a, uh, a CD called Aware. It was Aware oh, 2. Yeah. I mean, Aware 2 had, so I don't you, I mean, I'm sure you guys I remember right. that. Yeah, Greg so, Vladimir started that. Right, so it was unreleased, or unsigned bands. Mm -hmm. And Aware 2 had, like, Better Than Ezra, Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, like, four or five bands that, like, boom, after that. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. So what's Aware 1 like? And went back and found Aware 1. And you guys are on that with Acoustic Junction and The Grapes. And, Jack you know, and Pierce was on there. Yeah, Jack and Pierce. Wine Bottles were on there. Right, yeah. so, um, so anyway, so that's, like, that was like a greatest hits album for me, man. Like all those bands back then, and you guys in the sweet spot. So that's where I found you, and then, and then Linus in '98 and '99, and wherever we could find you. So What's the dude's name? Joe. Joe what? Who ran that place? Who's been dead now for quite some time? Yeah, mm -hmm. he booked some good bands in there, though. He did. He liked that's a lot of good stuff in there. All right, so. So I found two connections to, to Panic with you guys. You may know more, but so here are the two. One is David Blackman, mm -hmm. who played on their you know their first album, Very and first one. played with them you know thirty plus times live. And then he was on what Ghost Dance? Mm -hmm. What was the was that was that the one time you guys played yeah, together? He played or? on a Man in Your Band. Right. <laughs> so is that just like a studio session kind of deal, or did you well, guys have a relationship with them? We were cutting at the old Capricorn Studios in mm -hmm. Macon, Georgia. It was a place called Phoenix Sound, and it was the old Capricorn mm -hmm. recording room. And, um, yeah, there was a song called Man in Your Band playing Sucker Fiddle. So, well, that's got that fiddle in it. Steve yeah. hadn't joined the band yet. Okay. So, so Dave, we, we, yeah, we knew David through the panic camp. Okay. So, that's how we came. Um, he came over and played a couple of tracks on that thing and killed it. And then the, the other one is Johnny Sandler. We produced two albums for them. A bunch for you guys, or how many times did you First three albums. Them? Okay. He did. So, so we were all those bands that kind of came out of that Georgia scene. Mm -hmm. All Good was recording down there, mm -hmm. and Widespread's first few albums. Mm -hmm. you know, and we, went, we just kind of followed along. That's yeah. the place to be for bands like us. Really? Johnny kind of had a more organic, bottom-up type yeah. old Muscle Shoals way of mixing music. Right. Rock bands was really good. Yeah. And and didn't take all the jam off the bands. He just mm -hmm. let us do right. do what we instinctively wanted to do and kind of point us in the right direction. We learned a ton from Johnny really? Salem in Not the early days of our records. Really kind of fine-tuning us about, okay, guys, this really works. You know, kind of pointing us in a direction, mm -hmm. you know, that was, was helpful. Right. I remember him saying one time, look, man, there's nothing wrong with jamming. Just make it go somewhere. Right. Yeah, that's the point. It has to be within the song, right? It, it has, has to be a song. Some, some songs lend themselves to it, some don't. He goes, you guys write really interesting, good tunes. Mm -hmm. A lot of them says they're pretty, mm -hmm. you know, they're not just bang or twaddle. He goes, and right. sing great harmony. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to say, don't, don't, not, you know, don't over gloss over those things mm -hmm. when you're writing and you're mm -hmm. 
playing and you're singing. So he taught you more than just about recording, but about oh, how yeah. to play. We learned how to record, too. We're really right. trying to just fine-tune, point the band and do what he felt like where, it's, where yeah. it was best. So we did the, we did junkyards and wave on a lucky day down there, and then we kind of felt like we'd, it's like an apprenticeship. Kind of, uh, we were ready. Yeah. To, we figured out what we needed to do. We yeah. just book a room and engineer, and we were ready to go. So after that, did y'all basically produce your own stuff? or? We, did. we, we hired an engineer for yeah for Ghost Dance and Dragons. We hired an engineer and and um, Waxing Moon, and then we just pretty much told the engineer what we wanted. We, yeah, after make you know you've been in there that many times, you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, you know, what, you know what you're doing, you know what you're yeah. after. And mm-hmm. You just need a good engineer to help you get it. Yeah, work through the technical part of it. But yeah, we pretty much yeah from then on. Jim Becker's staff helped us a lot on yeah. the Double Live album and Waxing Moon. Okay. And, you know, Jim was just like one of us. I wrote tunes with him. He's played on our albums. We're like, just, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just like, how are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Just like Johnny. That's where we met Jim. He was engineering on Johnny on our okay. first record. Yeah. So everybody was kind of connected to that camp. So are there are there other connections? that I know that you got, I looked in the in the archives. Y'all played in some festival at, uh, at Riverwalk in Augusta in like 91. We did. We played there with them. That was a cool show. I was talking to some guys in Augusta from last Saturday night show. They were in yeah. a band that also played there. Oh, really? Olga was there. We were there. Moondiles were there. Huh. Widespread. And that was kind of when they had not quite taken off. Oh, yet, for sure. Yeah. Cool place. It's still there. I'd love to do a show at mm-hmm. Riverwatch again with us maybe this summer. Do they still do shows there? They do. I think Government Mule was the last biggest one I've okay. seen down there. So a lot of stuff's going out to Evans now. Okay. They built a big uh, park, you know, stadium type mm. pavilion thing out mm. there where people go. It's all the big, really big country acts and stuff okay. playing out there. So it's it's hard to you know ticket the Riverwatch because you have to have gate security because anybody can just walk in there. Mm-hmm. But what was cool about that was all the boats that came up behind the stage on the Savannah River, man. That was yeah, yeah. That was no, a cool, cool show. We played there with them. We played Victorian Village with them. We played Redgate Farm with them. Uh, and there was probably another one somewhere mm-hmm. in those early days, back before they really. Took sure. Um, were there other connections that I, other than you know playing with them and and David and Johnny that you guys? Um, yeah, our first. Uh, our first sound man, one of a guy named Brad Blattenberg, when he got off the road with us, he went and worked, went to work for Widespread. He's been there 25 years, six years. He's well, still he's still, he's still there. Uh-huh. He does their stage managers. He's been with them the he whole He actually way. lives here, in fact. Yeah, he's from Charleston. Well, I imagine he's in Atlanta right now. Yeah, yeah. he is. There. He's there. <laughs> so he was here last time we played here. They were off the road. So Brad still have a connection okay. internally with, with him being there. Yeah. Started off with us, and he got on the right gig, man. But he's been there a long time, close to 30 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, they're like, not compare them to the dead, but like when you get that size, you know, you become a, you become a, you know, a corporation almost, right? Yeah, you it's a big operation. Up. It carries a lot of people around. Yeah. It's a lot of people working, working in, within it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to see it, really. Sure. Um, so... I haven't seen any of those guys in years. Yeah, man. yeah. I was going to ask if, like, no, I mean, I just time I saw him play live, Mikey was still alive, and it was probably like St. Louis. You remember that? Mm-hmm. We got into that gig. Um, I mean, because then when they were kind of getting it big, you guys were on the road constantly too, right? So it's not we were. We were still playing the you know bars, and mm-hmm. small theaters this size, or maybe up to mm-hmm. thousand seat size. It's kind of where we were in. We were in a lot of those size rooms, yeah. doing okay, making sure. our carving our. 
finding our way, just yeah. like all of us try to do. Right. Yeah, just, you know, just unbelievable <laughs> set of bad circumstances sometimes. Uh, but it's, you know, we certainly weren't the only ones affected by it. It happened yeah. to plenty of people. Yeah. And worse, I mean, it was... And you still, like, made a lot of great music and, you know, had a lot of fun, right, I would think. Yeah, we did. You know. We're still, we're not out of it yet. Yeah. We're, we're doing it. We're just trying to find what There's works stuff, right? and what yeah. feels like, okay, this the is... The fact that we can still draw a crowd after all these years and taking a break like that is yeah. a testament to... Right. I mean, like, because I, I would say... I work on the road. I mean, because, you, like, you know, I mean, I don't want to make myself a fanboy, but I mean, I, just, I still listen to you guys all the time, and... There, there would be times when there were bands like that from the '90s that I'd hear, and I'd like go check and be like, "Oh, this guy's still playing," or you know, "What are they going?" And I remember look, you know, looking you guys up a few years ago, and it was like, you know, you have one show, and you know, out at the beach or where, there was a place at Myrtle, I think y'all played maybe, and it was like, "Oh man, they're not playing anymore. That sucks." But then, you know, so it seems like you guys are trying to, you know, well, back up a little bit. We just stuck our toes in the water to see what would happen. Exactly what Sanders said. You take a break that long, mm-hmm. there. We didn't know anyone. Right. <laughs> right. So I tell you, I, I booked sure. a show at Eddie's Attic. Uh-huh. I kind of got talked into it. I wasn't even planning on doing it. He said, why don't you come play, you know, yeah. play by yourself. Mm-hmm. And Eddie's, you know, Eddie's is a listening room. Right. And the cave of George is like everybody knows about it. So I'm yeah. like, okay, well, I didn't think 25 people show. First show sold out. They had, yeah. it's only 180 tickets. Yeah. They added another one. It sold out. I was yeah. like, Sanders, you want to sit in? So I started asking Jay, and then I started, you know, I said, "Why don't y'all come sit in?" So we just kind of let's uh, let's just see what happens. So we just did a couple small things like that at first, Mm -hmm. and said, "Well, I guess they hadn't forgot about us." So you know, we just like I said, we like wading into the deep end again. Wait, wasn't that an album? Wait, right? right. So. and that was that felt like the safest, and, and we're still waiting right now. I mean, we may go further out, and we're going to. There might be some different variations of how we see where this is going to go, mm-hmm. which we don't know yet. Sure. We'll just have to see what happens. But yes, there's, it's more than, frankly, more than I think any of us really probably thought when we first got. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't realize it had been that long until we kind of sat down and said, "When was the last time we really played?" And you realize it was a lot longer than you thought. It was yeah. really about eight years. Uh-huh. I think there was a one-off New Year's Eve show in there somewhere uh-huh. when Oscar Blues opened that mm. that thing in Brevard, where several of us are from. That mm-hmm. guy's went to Auburn. He's a big, great friend of ours, another guitar player. So we did that, and that was. But we didn't play any. We really weren't playing. It was kind of mm. we were out of it. So, do you guys? How's it? Does it sound any different than it did 15 years ago? Well, John Myers on lead with us, and you know, John's new, but he's not new to the camp. He was my roommate in Macon when we started the band. Mm. He was the sound engineer for the band we had before that, which several of us came out of. And he came up with the name of the band. So I tried to get him in the band back then. He just didn't want to do it. I don't blame him. We were terrible. He'd been on the road with the hard rock band in Canada for years, and he. You want to get married, settle down, mm. do some other stuff. So he's playing with us now, and he's a harder, harder edge, little harder edge player. Mm. He's good enough to play anything, but he's that that element's a little bit different. Mm. Kind of like maybe you know when Jimmy went in to play with, yeah, very similar to that. He's right. a gifted player like mm. that. Okay, but he's different. But right. yeah, the core sound of what we sound like yeah. still there. He's okay. it's not altered that much. Got a little bit more 
balls in some sections. Okay. We're writing all kinds of new stuff. We've got three new singles coming in 2020. We just put that album out last year. It's um, so the Wild Wild West. We're yeah. getting new music out to a fan base without sure. record companies and radio programmers yeah. stopping us dead in our tracks. I love the fact that I'm not having to navigate around them anymore. Sure. I mean, granted, Spotify and these, these streaming platforms do not pay us very much money. But then again, I don't have all the, it's near the obstacles. Mm -hmm. So you get something really moving on playlists and fans sharing stuff, you can, yeah. that stuff can really take off. Mm -hmm. and I, I think from a music lover myself, mm -hmm. that is cool. Mm -hmm. For fans and people to be able to get in there and dig around on the buffet table with Spotify and, sure. and share it. And it's, you know, that's just the way. But that's going to go. You know, the streaming platforms are not going to go away the way we record. We don't even record music in studio. We all have home rigs, mm -hmm. pass the files back and forth, do it that way, work on them at soundcheck, take them into the live show. Yeah. So the way you make it, the way you get it to the fans, the way you find new fans, the way you market, it's also it's completely different mm -hmm. than the way that it used to be, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's enabled a band like us after 29 years to still find this shred of relevancy in this business, which mm -hmm. is hard to do in our age. It's hard to keep your core audience. Sure. It's, been, it's never been easier, in my opinion, to reach new potential fans if you can figure out how to do it. Now, I will say this is a footnote. A band like us that kind of had a brand name before all this hit doesn't hurt. A band starting off from absolutely the bottom of the barrel right now, I don't know how they possibly do it. Traveling down the road 200 days a year is not going to do it either. Right. And there's so much content out there to be found or heard. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, noticed, oh right? my gracious, I don't even know how you, you really got to, you still got to have some breaks and some skill mm -hmm. and it takes more than just your playing and I mean, you, you really do, you have to, gosh, now you have to be a great social media and marketer, right. not only write songs and be accomplished at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But you have to be able to do all these other things you used to hire help for or have help doing. Mm -hmm. Now that all has to come from with in-house. Right. So that seems pretty daunting to me for a young band or any sure. young musician starting off. I'm not saying it can't be done because it can. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take but a couple organic things to get traction via the Internet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's still a long, hard, hard road. Are there any new bands out there right now that you think are, you know, making important music? Gosh, that are, that are getting noticed. No, there's tons of them out there. I mean, I don't know who they are, though. More so than bands. You know, I see Pete Townsend say the other day, "Oh, guitar's dead and rotten." No, it's not. No, you know, it's not dead. You just got to rethink what you're doing with it. I mean, and watching some of these, some of these kids that are so accomplished. So no, I mean, it's. I can think of guitar players I've seen lately who just. Did you throw out a couple? Uh, uh, like Andy McKee's one that comes to mind. That, uh, I'll ask you. Well, I think, blown away I think Miles is one of those kind of Michael Hedges type. Yeah. Tapping acoustic type. Yeah, players. Miles did. And, um, Have you seen Billy Strings? Oh, yeah. Billy's another one that's come yeah. along in the, you know, blasting up the grass yeah. circuit. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. really yeah. excellent yeah. rock musician, too. Well, bluegrass music. Yeah. And, you know, he reminds me, too, of, like, He's got the wild freedom that's like leftover well, here, sound. Let me talk to you. Just <laughs> where he just lets it he just lets it hang out and lets it go, right. man. And he's you know, he that's likes to jam and right play with other people yeah, and I can see why he you know, he's just got a, a vibe about him and the musicians love playing with him and he's he's humble and he's, he's a great player. He just loves playing, it shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm, yeah, there's been 
plenty of those grasser guys come along, you know, but not one that's quite as brings the same energy he does. Sure. He's just got a different vibe yeah. to him, man. Yeah. So, and it's fun. I think he's got a. It's a, people pick up on that. What about um, like influences, like for the not even you, but just the band? Like, what, what would you say would be the you know, the main influences for you guys. Boy, if you, this is interesting. You ask everybody individually, you're going to get a totally yeah. different answer. And I think that's a great thing, right? I mean, that makes for an awesome, unique sound. Yeah, would. No, that was for the same. Like, okay. What was, you know, Sanders was probably funk and R&B and I listened to a lot of Blues Dead in my late teens. A lot of Motown stuff I listened mm. to. I loved Steve Ray Vaughan. My guilty pleasure is new wave pop from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I incorporate much of that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I started off playing all bluegrass right. banjo. Yeah. I started playing banjo in second grade, played nothing bluegrass music up to about eighth grade, got bored with it, stole my mom's guitar. Heard my first Skinner and Allman Brother and Marshall Tucker records. Wow, I gotta learn how to do this. So for me, those kind of bands, Led Zeppelin, and, yeah. and um, just anything really like that, but I've really the southern rock stuff's kind of what I cut my teeth on learning how to play guitar and old Doobie Brothers and stuff like that. So and then bluegrass aside from the grass and you know Triz, Triz, what you know you started off playing classical music as a kid, didn't you? Yeah. So when you know what I don't even know that you know we met him in Colorado through the Salmon guys. We found Triz through Mark Van. That's yeah. how we were doing a contra piece for John's wife when she was finishing the thesis at CU in Boulder. Mm. And we needed a film player for it because it was a huge 50-minute contra piece. John had scored. He'd written most of it. So mm. we had acoustic banjo and guitar. We needed a film player. So mm. we played some shows with the Sam guys. So mm-hmm. kind of hold Mark said, hey, who's a good film player? And Mark said, oh, you need Trisman for me. <laughs> so Tris came yeah, out and played with us. Like and he came out and played with the band. And then we stole him. <laughs> He's been here ever since, man. So... So what other influences, though, like for you, Tris, coming along other than you're classically trained as a kid? I'm a, I'm a bluegrasser and a folky, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, I'm just an improviser and I get to play with the people I'm playing with, mm-hmm. you know. I should know more about history and who I'm emulating. Mm-hmm. You're in the perfect band as well, either. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first night Tris came up and played with us in Vail, and uh, Felty and I were on stage. And I knew we were going to kill the kind of country rock, bluegrassy stuff we do. Come on, you got to let the banjo and fiddle. We, yeah. You know, we don't, that was like riding a bike for Tris and I. So I was like, okay, I know that's going to be easy. Right. But it's what he started doing in the rock music. Right. Yeah. And I looked over at Felty on stage, and Tris was cutting loose to something like them. Blue Agave. Uh-huh. And I was like, are you listening to this? Are you listening to this? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I'm listening to this. I was like, holy shit. It sounds like dregs or, yeah. you know, Kansas or, you know, with the freedom of what he, to put that kind of fiddle playing in a rock context was really, I'm like, okay, you don't hear that every day. You hear it more than kind of country rock and bluegrass. And yeah. I love what, you know, instead of doing guitar harmony lines, like the Almond Brothers, we would do the harmony line with the guitar and the violin.
It's funny that you say after that, because when I was at uh, Jeff's uh, Sox Christmas party last weekend, uh, me and uh, Mike Barnes and hey, some other musicians were standing around talking. Well, second, you know who side is? Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. just making sure. Uh, well, Mike Barnes and I and McDaniel 
we're standing around and like we're all saying, what was your first, because everybody's got like their, when you started playing music, obviously you had a first album that you listened to as an influence on that, but we went like way back, like, no, what was like the first album like when you were a kid mm -hmm. that you had, to, that you went and got, you mm -hmm. know, the three most influential, before you even played an instrument. Right. And mm -hmm. oddly enough, mine was, because um, I actually laid out of school for this. We were living in Colorado. And I did the uh, the old hold the thermometer up to the light thing. Sure. My my uh, my stepfather had just bought uh, Dire Straits Sultans of Swing. Oh wow! And I actually I was so excited about that record that I faked being sick so that I could skip school. <laughs> and I skipped <laughs> and I skipped school and and stayed home and I, I listened to that record back and back you know flipped it over. I got really good at being able to take. Uh, records out, clean them really well, play them, and then put everything back like nothing had been disturbed. Um, and I go through, you know, his his whole uh, library of music. But that was the one that I was like, really, I got to have this. So I stayed home for that. And then, um, I, believe it or not, the other two most influential albums after that. This is pretty before I was playing drums. I, mean, I was playing a little bit of piano. And, and, and fooling around with guitars because they were in the house. My stepfather had a guitar, and of course my uncle had a guitar. Um, but I had a, another album that was it was called Arumba, and you'd have to Google it probably to find it. And I think they did like one or two albums. And it was world music. It was a lot of different uh, instruments, uh, percussion, uh, flute, and lute, and you know, instead of guitar. And, mm -hmm. and um, I remember listening to that. And then the other one was actually a guy right around here in the Raleigh area. Matt, you might remember him. And I was actually thinking about shooting you a couple of tunes to his and see if he ever wanted to work one of them up because he was a really great songwriter. A guy named Mike Cross. And he was a multi-instrumentist. He still plays, I think, around. He was pretty big in Raleigh, or Chapel Hill area. He played violin, he played guitar, he played, um, I think, banjo and hammer dulcimer, all kinds of stuff. And he wrote really cool songs. Mm -hmm. So that was... That's like the first stuff I started listening to, mm -hmm. like turned my ear towards music. Mm -hmm. And of course, when I started playing music, you know, my my influences kind of run all over the map. You might have got the same answers from these guys. I've always just appreciated music as long as it was good. Sure. Yeah, you know, I, didn't, I didn't like gravitate to one specific right. genre. Now, I went through all different styles. I mean, you know, for... Yeah, I was very academic with music early on, so I obviously listened to a lot of classical, and then I listened to a lot of um, jazz and a lot of jazz fusion stuff. Um, now, this is like middle school and, and high school. Now, I had a, I studied with Byron Hespeth at uh, UNCA, and he was very, um, he was anti any music other than proper music. It was very music. It was musical. So it was either classical music or it was acceptable to listen to jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, he really kind of pushed me in that direction. I remember I walked in with a, a Rosington Collins. Uh, it was a we had a it wasn't a CD. What, what was it back then? It was I had to make a tape off a record. You know, mm -hmm. and burn it down. And put it down to cassette. You didn't even burn it. You recorded all that. And um, I walked in like because Derek Hess from Rosington Collins was a smoking drummer. He was killer. You know. <laughs> And I love that kind of music. I still I thought that stuff was killer, so I snuck some of that in. And he just was like, well, the drummer's great. And that's all he said about it. 
<laughs> you know, um, but then I believe it or not, the next thing I wrote because he would I, he would make me study this, um, this these odd time signatures, um, and then I, of course I had to learn timpani and marimba and you know all the other other classical instruments to play. So I would do all that, but as like a reward, a treat, he would let me bring something in like that I wanted to learn, like I, you know, help me figure this this out, and um, and I brought in a. Uh, uh, I brought in a Robert Plant that had Richie Hayward on it, which actually he's the one that I, I learned about Little Feet after that because I was trying to figure out who this incredible drummer was that was on this Robert. Robert Plant did an album called Shaken and Stirred mm-hmm. um, back in the 80s that was, uh, it was like a really poor seller, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, I, grab, I, I gravitate to all the albums that don't sell well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of where my, my ears lie. But, um, the drumming was amazing, so I brought that in. You know, we transcribed. They had a tune that was actually on uh, uh, MTV called "Little by Little." I don't know if any of you guys remember mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the drumming was just smoking on it. And then I anyway, it was it was really cool tune. Yeah. Great drum. So. And we transcribed the whole thing, and then I started, then that's how I got turned off, sort of figuring out who Little Feet was. And then, you know, John was a big, felt he was, was a big, he had a big Little Feet influence. But, yeah, I was all over the map, man. I was listening to what I was required to listen to for my education, um, and digging it, you know. I mean, I, I even went, you know, as far back as, the, I loved the, the, the big band stuff. I actually played in a big band when I was in high school um, with a bunch of guys who were in their, they were in their mid-60s, and I was this 15-year-old kid, you know, uh, playing on Saturday nights at the Charleston Falls Country Club. They had a 15-piece jazz band in there, and uh, they, my mom would drop me off in there, and I'd go on Saturday night and make 50 bucks and, <laughs> and play swing all night. Um, so I was a lot into that into, um, during my teen years, and, of course, you gravitate towards anybody... I think, and you can even talk to folk singers and jazz, everybody wants to rock a little bit. I mean, you just do. And so, like, when you step out of traditional jazz, if you want it to rock a little bit, you want it to groove and rock, then here's where fusion music comes. Because you, know, you had, like, John McLaughlin, who spun off from playing at Miles Davis, you know, Bitches Brew and, and all that stuff, and then he formed, like, the first, you know, Pro- progressive jazz thing mm-hmm. which turned out to be fusion mm-hmm. which you know it's, it's, it's some of it's kind of hard to listen to but but then it had like groove you know what ding 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 it had backbeat which was a no-no in jazz I mean you if you put a smack to two and four in the middle of jazz swing you know somebody turn around you're fired <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was so, so I couldn't come in there and rock at all so then I started listening to a lot of fusion I got into Chick Corea uh, Return to Forever um, I was listening to Dema Vishnu. I was listening to a great band, Weather Report, which is where I discovered Omar Hakim. Then Omar Hakim drew me back into the rock world because he started playing with, uh, he got hired from Weather Report to play with Sting because he was playing on Dire Straits' album. You know, you see how it all, he was, he was working with Martin Offler and Sting came in to, to do the I want my MTV on that big song, uh, Money for Nothing. Mm-hmm. 
just out of nowhere, I got hired as a, I started playing in a, in a cover band. I went to work for two weeks at a pizza place called Little Caesars. I absolutely hated it. I couldn't stand doing restaurant work. I was in school at the time. And I'd go every day from like 2.30 to 6 in the evening and, and, and make pizza. I hated it. As a matter of fact, when I quit, I took my, that was camp with my buzz, I took my, my uniform and I burned it. We had a campfire going and I, I stripped that, I came stripped right down into my skibbies and burned my uniform. Um, but I got hired in a, in a cover band. I was, I want to say 18, I was a freshman at, and this was in Bavard. I was going to, to Bavard College and that which didn't work out so much. I ended up going to Blue Ridge. Because I was, I'm in the house with four of my best friends, and of course that was just a train wreck. All we did was drink all the time. You know? um, but it, I, I found a, <laughs> I, I found a, a gig in the paper. You know, I've been playing this Conesty Falls, and I was like, you know, man, I made some money with drums because pizza's not working out. And uh, <laughs> so I uh, <laughs> there was a band over in Hendersonville called the Hooligans, and they played like they played the Allman Brothers. And they played Skinner, and they played all that music that I liked, but was never acceptable. With, mm-hmm. You know, my instructors and and stuff. So, man, I went over and auditioned, and like this is the same thing, scenario again. These guys are like thirty five years old, you know, and they're looking. You know, they already they had pretty established. Played all the, the well, they actually played. There's a chapter of the Hell's Angels that resides over in Hendersonville, Asheville area of North Carolina. And they were like the favorite band of, of the bikers. Wow. And that's where I really started cutting my eye teeth. Mm. Playing three nights a week sometimes in front of a bunch of bikers. Mm. And, you know, and it was red and it was wild and we were playing. But that's where I started to appreciate, like, the Allen Brothers. Like, you know, we were doing the, the typical Allen Brothers stuff. But then, you know, I'd always buy, like, the album to learn the song or whatever that we were playing. I ended up listening to the whole record. I was like, wow, there's a lot of substance mm-hmm. to this. I mean, sure. it's way past rambling, man. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and the stuff that you have to do and, and one way out to appease the crowd. I still don't understand why people always do one way out when uh, the, the, you can always do Soul Serenade and, and uh, you know, I'm losing the name of the team will come to me in a minute, but I would always... Play, want to play it uh, over some other ones, but so I'd always listen to love the B side stuff, and then, of course I found Fillmore East, mm-hmm. and in, in like during this whole time, you know somebody grabbed me at some point and said, "Dude, you're in a dead end, you know, playing a cover band, you know," and I'd already seen enough, you know, biker chicks brass mm-hmm. at 18 years old, which mm-hmm. you know is not something to brag about anyway, but you know it it was getting pretty rough and. I was already starting to drink and stuff like that. Somebody kind of like grabbed me by the car. I was like, dude, don't waste yourself playing in cover band, you know. And then I applied to Berkeley College of Music, and that's where I was going to go. And, and I had put all the stuff together for my audition, and it was, I had to, I mean, they sent you all this stuff that you had to do, and then you had to record all of it. You had to sight read a piece, already recorded and all that. Of course, I don't know how they even figured that because you kept you could fake it, but then you had to sight read again when you got in there. And then you had to perform a piece that they had written, and then you had to um, you had to perform something on your own, just like a free solo. So I had taken lots of time to put all this together, and and right as it was, I had it all put together to mail it to Berkeley. We had a big, you know, rager at my house, and I don't know. I still to this day don't know what happened to it. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, I mean, I mean, we we were the, like the only house in Bavard, North Carolina that. 
that people could go to and hang out because there's four dudes who are 18, 19 years old. So everybody at Bavard College came to our house. And I'm not kidding. I mean, we, it, it was insane. I couldn't, it took me 30 minutes to get to my bedroom one night. I came home from, from playing a gig and like opened the door and I had to squeeze, you know, through people because, you know, so anyway, something happened to that. I was messing with alcohol too much anyway, and I didn't have enough ambition at that time to even retake the steps to do the Berkeley thing, because that was just a huge hurdle anyway. And uh, it was like a two-week period, and I'd gotten heavy into the Allman Brothers and stuff, and it just all kind of came together. Somebody was tapping on my shoulder saying, get out of this cover band. And I went and saw you guys over at uh, Be Here... Yeah. No, 45 Cherry. Yeah. I mean, this was like, I want to say 90? Yeah. 91. Yeah. And I met Andrew Hatch. Yeah. And Andrew Hatch had a, a place in, uh, he, he needed a roommate in Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I was just in, at a point in my life, I was like, I'm going to go in the Navy. I'm going to do something. I mean, you know, I got to get something happening. I was just... I didn't want to stay with my friends anymore because I knew that was a dead end and just I was just going to be washed out and drunk and you know, and in five more years down the road be working back at a pizza joint with nothing, and I didn't want to stay in a cover band any longer and all that and and uh, I moved down. It was like two week period and bam, I just packed my stuff up and I moved down to Athens, Georgia, hmm. and it was perfect timing because like I was way into the boat. So I went down and saw you guys. I went and saw John. Stayed down in Macon, and then John and I went out to uh, Rose Hill and all that. And I remember sitting and listening to, to you know, Fillmore East down there back and over and over again. And then uh, um, somebody, had, it was John. John had given me, uh, it was John and I together. He said, hey, have you listened to this yet? And it was a choir mask unit. <laughs> well, you had mentioned sites, but I just wanted to tie that. Because you talked about music that's just good music. Yeah. And it's like, I swear, every time I talk about music, and I don't know if it's just Southern people, it's like, it always comes back to Bruce. Like, Bruce is always there. Yeah. Like, you can't avoid it. And he was and, in the middle of our camp, too. Yeah, so I, I, mean, I figured was, I had him in the camp. He would show up when we were cutting the records at Johnny's, and it was just, you just, well, the, the whole session came to a stop when Bruce showed up. <laughs> and usually the couch over there, and I have this one vivid memory of Bruce sitting there, and Sanders, like, was, Sanders is such a terminal smartass. Mm. Now, Bruce was going around the thing trying to get, guess everybody's birthday. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Sanders was just messing with him. Not no, not even close, man. I said, Sanders, the story that goes, I don't even remember that. I said, I do, because I was sitting over here. I said, he got two of us completely wrong. He got me wrong and he got you wrong. The other rest of got real close. Yeah. But he was, that's the first time I'd ever seen him. I'm sure no one might have already known him, but he, he was tied into that whole thing. I yeah. couldn't tell if he was. For real, or yeah, it was hard. Right. I was trying to figure yeah. out if it was just if, he was, if it was just he was acting, right. or it was really like that. It was kind of scary. He's got yeah. one foot, me, or had one foot, and and this is I'm, and I, I'm quoting someone else right now who spent a lot more time with Bruce than I did. Uh, so this isn't my quote. I'm totally plagiarizing this, but he says, you know, he says I had one foot in infinite wisdom. And another foot and a pile of shit. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know. He, Bruce then, came to Deerwood. Bruce stayed out, out at Deerwood oh, for... Oh, gosh, uh, this is a story. you oh, got to hear this. First, because, first of all, Noel played in the Fiji Mariners. Okay. Yeah, I played with him Dr. Bruce <laughs> and Dr. Dre. Yeah, Dr. So yeah. oh, wow. All of us are tied. Yeah. You know, there's so, Bruce all in... So here, this is here hilarious. No, this is hilarious, though. I mean, I want to hear the story about Deerwood, but... So, the Fiji Mariners played Linus 
on in 1997 on my 21st birthday. So, so I, which is funny because that's what Bruce says is he plays the first. Well, I could have very well been there for that because that was time yeah. period. I was I was between him and and uh, and Catfish Jenkins. Okay. Right, right around that time. Who was also on uh, Aware, well, one of the Aware yeah, records. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, it's yeah. just it's all right there. But no, so tell me about when Bruce came out. West just came out and played the last Eddie show with me. We did a couple yeah. and did a couple Catfish Chicken songs. Love yeah. that. Love that yeah. band. Yeah. Well, that was a killer band. Yeah. yeah, I really liked them. So Bruce, man, I think he was backstage at the Almond Brothers show. See, I didn't know any of this. This is how Bruce will mess with you. So I hadn't seen Bruce Ross. I'm sitting backstage behind at Lakewood. I think this is where it happened. I get them confused. We played a bunch of shows with Almond Brothers, and I was sitting on the road case behind the stage. So, what, year, what year is this? Like, it's a Georgia Jam. Yeah. Well, late, mid, early, ni- mid 90s, somewhere in there. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Somewhere yeah. there. Yeah. When, did you, when did he come up to Deerwood looking for you? I think Deerwood was, I want to say, like 95, 96. Okay, it was that year. Okay. okay, so anyway, I'm sitting on the road case back there by myself just listening to the brothers. We'd just opened up. I'm like, man, we just played at Lakewood. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's on <laughs> And Bruce comes walking by in front of me. And he walks by, and I saw it was Bruce. I didn't say anything. And he stops. He backs back up. And he turns around and looks at me. And goes, he goes, you live in Deerwood? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, it's a spiritual place. He walks off. <laughs> okay. yeah, that'd be idea I had right? no idea. Yeah. He I said, now, first of all, how does he know where I'm from? <laughs> right. Well, I do what is a big camp. My dad used to run this big place, mm-hmm. summer camp in Bavard. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful place. It's got about a couple hundred acres out there on the French Broad River. He ran that boys camp there from 66 to 91. When he closed it, my folks had a couple rent houses going. Noel was renting the house across the street from my parents, one of them. Mm-hmm. So this had all happened before he hit me with the Deerwood thing, which I knew nothing about. So Bruce goes up there to find Noel. Uh-huh. Before this to, interaction. To recruit, yes, to recruit This is back before both. cell phones and all that. Yeah, so to, recruit, just, yeah to recruiting for the Fiji mayor. So he shows up at my mom's and dad's house, not, knocks on the door. My mom tells me this a year later, a year and a half, two years later. You know, she goes, I thought it was some homeless person. I didn't know Somebody's knocking on the porch looking for Noel. I didn't want to tell him who was over because he had stains all over his clothes were all messes. I thought he was a homeless person, you know, and I was like, anyway, he was looking for Noel. I said, Mom, that was Carl Bruce, and then I put it all together. He had been there, seen the old family place. Mm-hmm. Recruiting? No, of course he left all that out. He just wanted yeah. to mess with me. Yeah, for a well, we which he did. There. And I was like, "How did he?" Because you know, he's he can right. clairvoyant. Yeah, he can yeah. predict things. And I'm yeah. like, he freaked me out. Right. I was like, "Okay, yeah. that dude's." <laughs> you know, hilarious. he let that go. To it took years before I finally figured out how all that happened. How that connection? Yeah, how that connection was. Man, it's Boy, so... he sure let me stew on that for a few years. <laughs> I, I he, that that frightened me almost. I'm yeah. like. I, I don't know about that guy. Basically, <laughs> I never forget. I, your mom had, had put a note under the windshield wiper of my car. I traveled a lot then. I'm still touring and doing stuff like that. And I guess Bruce had come up there. Um, and I think Enrique Scott was playing with Bruce at that time. Okay. Yeah. Um, and something, I don't know what. Uh, maybe Enrique was wanting to do something else, or I, I don't know. And... Um, how did he even find it out you were out there? It's a spiritual place. Man. You know, he's he might he might have called the the two felties in the phone book, and yeah. my mom might have said he's out at. Yeah. Well, anyway, he must have come past through because I was out of town. I I, rem, I remember coming home, and I was with I think it was Catfish Jenkins. I was coming home, and we'd been gone for like we would go out there and do legs like y'all, man. Like I'd be gone for two three months at a time, and uh, like I said, just remember the time without cell phones and stuff. We mm-hmm. couldn't just. 
pick somebody up and find them out of nowhere. And I came home, and uh, <laughs> there's a note stuck underneath my windshield wiper in my car that your mom had written. And she said, some guy is trying to find you. And she said, and it had Bruce with a question mark and then like Colonel with a question mark <laughs> after that. You know? Because, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it's not like a U.S. Army guy. Like, right. Oh, and, and she said he left, he left his number, you know, and, and she had it for me. And I, I called him. It was a funny, I called him, and it was like a, a Tuesday. Well, it was a, a Saturday then, or Sunday. And I, I called him on Monday. And Wednesday, him and Dan Matrazo came to, to Deerwood. I mean, it was that quick. And he was after Noel, which is a testament to his chops and playing sure. ability. Because no, Bruce was the master at selecting I mean, players. That, yeah, he just had a knack for doing it. Like he got to be accomplished to play with. Yeah. Noel certainly is. I was sure. just like, what a fascinating story, though. Yeah. It's just well, back up man. to and I'll tie it all together so it makes more sense. Back up to I just moved to Athens, Georgia, right, and moved into this place with Andrew Hatch. Well, I didn't know nobody. I didn't know anybody. Right, and I remember I walked down. It was the first two weeks I was there. I walked downtown, and I went to the Georgia Theater, and I saw the Georgia Theater, and I saw Derek Trucks, and he was like twelve years sure, old. Yeah, was, he, he was a, he was an Atlanta Braves captain and guitar. Right. That's all I remember. But yeah. he was killing it, right? right? And I looked at the Georgia Theater, and I made a goal. I said, within one year, I'm gonna play this place. Mm. I mean, that was just. It's like you're here. You're gonna do something with yourself. Get your, you know, you're gonna put yourself together. And like from that moment, I actually met Sanders. Believe it or not, before Sanders was even in Jupiter Coyote, I was down at the Flying Buffalo. Yeah. And uh, Sanders and I, he was, hey, he was playing with uh, Blue Group. With Blue Group. That's how we met. Yep. Open up for us. And I, down, I met Sanders down there, and I met a, a friend of mine who's a, still one of my lifelong friends, a guy named Alex Wolf, who's a songwriter. And he was in the same position as me, trying to put a band together, trying to get it all figured out. He had a eight hundred thousand tunes. Guys, were, he's, he's as prolific as you when it comes to writing. I mean, guy spits out a tune every every week, um, and still does. But I met Sanders and Alex that same week, and we all kind of hung out a little bit. Like we'd go see Sanders play with Blue Groove, and then I remember Sanders used to come over to our pool. We used to throw parties at Jamestown Nine, but Alex and I hooked up. And we started playing, putting a band together, going through one musician after the other, and, and most of them were were okay to horrible to some good, but then once you found decent ones, you couldn't keep them together. So about a year into this, um, we had put another ad in in the, the what was the, it? wasn't creative, but the flagpole. The flagpole. That was, the, sure. it was, that was the Athens magazine. Mm -hmm. So we put an ad in the, in the flagpole for musicians again. Here we are, still trying to put this thing together. And I, I'm about to miss my goal of the Georgia Theater. And uh, and we started auditioning all these different players. Well, we must have had 200 guitar players come through the door. And this is all going to tie into Bruce and, and Jeff Sykes and the whole thing in just a minute. So, um, 200 guitar players had come through the door, not one single bass player. You know, and they just, you know, I play this, and some guy show up with a ukulele. I mean, we're just tired of auditioning people. Well, finally, we found this one guy who was a pretty good guitar player. We're like, well, we can build around him. We'll just keep looking for a bass player. So we left the ad Well, come home, Mark, and there's this message on the uh, on the answer machine. You know, hey, my name's Mark Mundy. 
Um, I play guitar and I play mandolin and I play a little banjo. See, uh, call me back. You don't know what you're missing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's exactly. So because of that message, we're like, you know, they, gotta check it we got to call this guy back. I mean, you know. <laughs> and Alex is like, well, you know, he just plays, he plays mandolin. That could be cool. You know? So, like, all right. And I'm like, you know what? I'm tired of auditioning guitar players all the time with no bass player around. So let's just, you know, let him bring an amp over or something or let him bring an acoustic guitar and we'll set up in the living room and just, you know, see how see things, see, see in his mesh. No, so to it we go over and meet this kid. He's got a old Fender lead to playing through this crate and half where he's got like a crate speaker in a box and a, and a half or an amp you know I mean it just looks like total disaster to begin with he grabs all that stuff um, but he looked like a guitar player you know he kind of had that I was like man you know, this guy looks great <laughs> I mean he looks like he's going to fit the part really well um, and he came over and plugged in and Alex you know just started throwing tunes and was not like you know working through progressions or anything he picked up every single turn. Every, I mean, just didn't have to turn and tell him one single chord. And Alex wrote very odd songs with odd meter and a lot of diminished chords. And, you know, it wasn't just G, C, and D, you know, and play a triad and, you know, blow through it. It was it was serious stuff. And he sat there and played through every daggum piece of it. I don't think we stopped once. He just sat there. And he walked out the door, and Alex and I sat in the kitchen for, like, five minutes just in a fit of laughter mm -hmm. like laughter and tears at the same time and said oh my god man that's I think that's the, like the best guitar player I have ever heard in my life so I had to do a job of calling the other guy and firing him and we just told him and, 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 and you know I called him up and I was like but man I'm telling you yeah. you need to hear this, this guy, guy. <laughs> I mean I'm, you know he's that good so you shouldn't feel bad that you're losing the gig when you see this guy play you would be like, okay, man, no worries. But anyway, so still haven't put it all together yet. So Mark comes over uh, next day, and we're like, hey, man, let's do some more stuff. And, you know, we're still in for a bass player. And he goes, well, hey, man, by the way, my best friend from high school is a bass player, you know, Mark Millwood. So, so he'd probably be interested in coming to do it. So, like, just that quick, we had a band. And then... I had been listening pretty heavy to ARU and, you know, all that kind of stuff, getting into those guys. And they were, they were the local guys that, like, crushed everybody, right? And uh, he goes, hey, man, uh, you want to go see a show on Friday night? And I was like, where at? And the Georgia Theater. He's like, well, I was always like, anything Georgia Theater is cool with me. He said, my brother's playing. My brother's got a band. You should come check him out. I'm like, who's your brother? And, and all of a sudden, it dawned. Mark Mundy, Matt Mundy. Mm -hmm. His brother was Matt Mundy, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the mandolin player in Aquarium Rescue. Wow. So, yeah. like, from then, it was like, it, we took off like freight train. You know, we met and with, with the guys from ARU, and they were kind enough, you know, because Mark, <coughs> little brother, this kind of stuff, to let us open up for them, you know, at the Georgia Theater. We slammed rehearsal together, but like, you know, and, and the next time they, they came in town four months later, we slammed a rehearsal together. And next time they came to town, we went and opened for them. And, uh, and they were accepting of us and let us, I mean, we, went, we toured all over the place with those guys for a long time. So that's how, you know, I got to know Jeff and, and so Bruce. So what band was that that you, were, that you guys started? 
uh, it was called a band called Both Sides. Okay. Um, we were we were very short lived. <laughs> but actually, it took four years to get it really off and running, and then like right after we got enough money to get and put a record together and recorded it, we 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 we, you know, we fell apart. Um, and then I went to do other things. I I did a short stint with with Coyote Eyes. Um, Gene ran the knife through his hand, almost all the way through his hand, and missed like a month. Noel popped in. No rehearsal, nothing. Mm-hmm. Bam. Yeah, but he, you know, he'd been, he started becoming a guitar player's nephew, so we grew up and knew everything we did. Mm-hmm. Jumped yeah. right in and was ready and nice. played a whole month and then. Wrote a song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole thing came out of that. And then when Gene, you know, Gene came back, I mean, it wasn't too much longer. His wife got pregnant with triplets. Mm-hmm. And the old just slid right back in. We never missed a beat. But he's, you know, we got had several felties in the band. Yeah. So it made it easy. You know, he grew up with John. He watched, he watched the whole thing happen. Yeah. So. Well, I don't know if Matt wants it recorded or not, but Matt and John and I used to play. Actually, Matt and I did a, a recording session at his house when I was in maybe eighth grade or something. And he recorded <laughs> all the... up in the basement. We were playing some stuff for the camp. Yeah, and he did all the camp songs. PC, I still remember PC Rock. Hmm. Putting a grip down to that, and then I thought we we had a camp band. We yeah. play the camp socials. Mm-hmm. Now Matt Travitt was playing. The original drummer for Jupiter Cady was was playing those as well. But I, I guess it was kind of my the same gig I'm doing now. You know, it's got like when Matt wasn't there, I was there. Yeah, um, you know, it was Travitt's kind of idea to do the band. None of us were going to do this. Mm-hmm. He lived in he had a farmhouse, family place in North Macon, in a little town called Forsyth about 20 miles north of Macon. Big 600 acre farm. He goes, my folks got this farmhouse out there. We can live there for free and practice. <laughs> so I just finished playing college basketball. I was getting ready to go to Europe play pro basketball. And he says, well, let's, let's, I said, I'll do it for one fall. We'll travel around and play some frat houses. And then I'm going to go back to North Carolina and train. I'm not going to do this. And it just, hmm. it was his idea to start a, wow. a band to go do it. I know Johnny and I didn't really you know, we thought, well, this will be fun to go goof around for a year before we got to go get a real job. Yeah, huh. that's kind of weird. It just, it just happened. Yeah. And then it turned into a real job. It right. did. And you're like, okay, there's a thing. We're either gonna have to do this or not. Awesome. That's perfect. But it was Matt Travitt's like, crazy idea. <laughs> you know, and to put that thing together and haul it down there and do it. Yeah. Made a record. People bought it. And, you know, got on aware and people yeah. heard it. And, yeah. For whatever reason, people reacted to it. Thirty years later, thirty years later, it's still it's still trucking along. But that's where it started. But yeah. it certainly was not. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go be yeah. getting a rock band right. and play. Yeah. I thought about going to Nashville and staff writing for a publishing company because uh-huh. I'd already been writing a lot of songs. I yeah. thought about that. Right. I didn't think about playing on the road for. A, yeah. huh. I really wasn't going to do that. I was going to go to Ireland and play pro basketball. Yeah. That's what I was probably going to do. <laughs>
Happy New Year, y'all. Thank y'all for coming, man. Let's have a great decade. Thank you. Happy New Year, y'all.